Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea. And this week, we're coming at you with a brand new episode, where we're going to talk about two releases, where we're kind of doubling down on last week, where we had a very metallic week, and we're having another metallic-ish week, where we're going to talk about two new releases from two new artists. We're going to be talking about the long-awaited project that has been long in development from one of this podcast's favorite musicians. We're talking about Devin Townsend's new project, Lightwork. And we're also going to be talking about the very comparatively smaller project from the second release of this band, technically speaking, from Fleshwater, also known as Vane FM, we're going to be talking about their new album, We're Not Here to Be Loved. It's got a duck on it. It's real cute. Looks like a ga- a goddamn twisted metal cover. It does a little bit. It does yeah. actually. Yes. Yeah, indeed. We are. We're 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 so into metallurgy lately. We're just back on that grind. And it's gonna be a fun episode. We have put out some good videos this week, actually, as well. Jake and I had a great conversation about One Odrix Point Never's masterful 2015 electro synth. I called it, I described it as cyber emo, which I still think is a really great term. Can <laughs> we invent a new subgenre called, instead of synth funk, can we call it synth fucked? Yeah. That's anyway, what that album G- is. Garden of Delete, which is like one of my favorite albums. And we had a really in-depth record club on it, which I'm very proud of. And we also did our latest episode of our national retrospective on Sleep Well Beast. Uh, though it was just me and Jake, it still somehow ended up being the longest episode in that series yet. We got really into the weeds with the concept and thematic ideas and sound of that really underrated uh, late career masterpiece. And we're excited to complete the series very soon with I Am Easy to Find. So make sure you're sticking around for that one as well. Anyway, as per usual, let's get into what we've been listening to for the last seven days. Jake, what have you been listening to? A lot. I swear to God, I wake up today immediately and I am brought attention to the my attention in any way. We have another major figure in the worlds I inhabit dying. I wake up to the news of Kevin Conroy dying and I still haven't gotten over the fact that unfortunately Mimi Parker from Lowe passed away. And I mean, like... God damn, man, this shit sucks so much. And I I was meaning to like get around to more of their stuff this year. And I had actually, I had listened to some of their EPs earlier on. So I I took it upon myself this week to at least get to a couple of their albums that I've been meaning to get to. Because one album that I listened to this year that I didn't mention on here that was one of my favorite first listens that I actually revisited again was Lowe's album Double Negative. Um, We covered the most recent Lowe release on the podcast, Hey What?, um, I wasn't there uh, for that episode, but I was um, um, lukewarm on that album and revisiting it. I'm still a bit lukewarm on it. It's just unfortunately one of those instances where I cover or we cover a band for the first time and they end up releasing the thing that I will probably fuck with the least uh, of their catalog because I immediately go to double negative and that shit blows me away and i love that album i i loved it even more than when i did when i first listened to it it's just this really fucked glitch pop chamber folk fucking electronic 
thing. It, it it feels like an album that shouldn't exist. It feels like an album that once was something and then went through some process of like electronic decay. And you're listening to like the ghost of another record. And I love it. It, it, it. It's a really textural, really visceral kind of experience. And I really enjoy it. And then I decided to listen to Lowe's debut. I could live in hope. I'm in danger. <laughs> ah, wow, that was that was an album. Um, that's you know that's their first record, so it's definitely a lot less you know lower a very eclectic band. So naturally, it's going to be less busy. Have a, maybe a lot less. Uh, you know, overriding ideas from different genres and stuff. This is very much like traditional slowcore kind of stuff, but it's really dense, really beautiful sounding slowcore that uh, the two vocalists get a lot of, you know, interplay between each other, get a lot of mileage out of that. Um, the thing it reminded me the most of, honestly, was the early work of Chelsea Wolfe, uh, most notably Apocalypsis. Uh, that's an album that's just sort of mired in that dark, gloomy, gothic folk that this album is not that far away from, honestly. And oh my god, it is just so fucking sad. Um, you can't really overstate it. Trying to to put into words... ah irony because the first track on there words my favorite song i've heard in quite some time honestly uh i've listened to that multiple times this week should give you a great idea as to my headspace um that is a just just a deeply uncomfortable very 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 sad song that it's like even... the it's like the suicidally depressed twin sister of mezzy stars fade into you <laughs> Yes, that's actually a perfect way of putting it. It's it's a music. It's music that, like I I was going to joke and like type type about this in the chat and just be like, haha, music to hang yourself to, and then the album actually has a song about hanging yourself. <laughs> it's well, it's not like it's not a it's not a forgiving record. Um, yeah, oh, like um, I think it's funny because like uh. You know, it's one of those records where it's like, and I think of Red House Painters, who are the most similar 90s band yeah. to Low at that point. I think I think of later bands that would come along, like Carissa's Weird, and do that sort of sound, like, and really lean into the depressive aspect of it. Uh, but it's really funny because, like, it seems like this curio of, like, you know, uh, deeply forgotten, sad 90s, you know, anti-grunge almost and yet like if you go on youtube and you look up like the song lullaby it has like 10 million views it's like one of those songs where it's just like it it Amazing somehow song. makes its way through the ether and ends up like touching the lives of thousands of millions of people so um that's i think one of the things that's underrated about low is that you know one thing i noticed this week after mimi's death was like I became aware of the fact that this band were actually more popular and well-known across America than I had thought they were, that I had assumed they were because they're such a, you know, because I see them as having such a limited appeal, but actually like the minimal, very sort of stripped back approach that they have 
actually makes them more accessible than I thought they would be to a lot of people. And so it was quite um, beautiful to see how much, like, I mean, for instance, uh, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin covered yeah. uh, the lead-off song on their album, The Great Destroyer, in a, in a show this week. And it was like, wow, you know, this was a band that really, you know, kind of transcended the niche that they sort of started out with and kind of made an impact um, bigger than you might expect from such a humble band, which is, yeah, one of the one of the beautiful things about them. Um, but yeah, I am planning to do a video on the discography of Low. Uh, should be out um, on Friday. And uh, yeah, that's going to be a tough one to record, but I've been prepping for it the last few days, starting to prep for it anyway. I've got a few more, a lot more to get through in terms of revisits. But yeah, I'm stoked to see how much you've been like just surprisingly into some of their earlier stuff, Jake. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've kind of known that this would happen for a while ever since I like dabbled in a couple of uh, their songs just sort of after Hey What? And I was just like, damn, this really does feel like a band that I would like capital L love and sort of going back and it, it, it's sort of, I can understand why you would think they have such a limited appeal is because, you know, in those later years, they got really experimental and really different from where they started out. So, you know, it feels like they would have a limited appeal, but when once you understand that they got there from a very, very long career where they started off in a place where it's just kind of like relatively everybody can enjoy something like that, given you're, you know, fucking sad enough. Um, but I mean, I Can Live in Hope is a beautiful album. Um, it is a lot to digest. I can't say that I would recommend listening to that if you are in a particularly, like, truly awful mood, uh, especially since Mimi's passing. It really has some moments that hit a little bit too hard. Um, mm -hmm. On the sort of other side of the spectrum, the other low album that I listened to uh, this week uh, is Trust, um, which I would probably say is, I mean you know, comparatively a little bit easier to listen to. It's got a bit of a sound that's a bit less uh, sparse. It's a bit more like dream poppy almost. It's a bit brighter. Um, and not to say that the emotional content is brighter, though it is frequently a bit more irreverent. I think that was the interesting thing about that album that uh, I didn't really see coming. Though, trust me, it has its moments of pure emotional devastation. Have fun on the track, Lamb. Um, but I also really enjoyed that one. Um, I, I would say that that's an album that I loved, but it's currently like double negative and I could live in hope or just sort of like battling it out for first place. But with this band's amount of great music, I wouldn't be shocked if another album I find like, you know, things we lost in the fire, the great destroyer, blah, blah. I'm, I'm going to listen to them all. So eventually mm -hmm. I'll have a definitive ranking, but whew. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a few I I I think you'll really really fuck with. I'm not even gonna like say much about them because I just want to sort of see what happens. Um, but I, I think the cool thing about Low is that like they're for some people this is a weakness, but they're a very consistent band in the sense that they don't really change things up much. I mean, their last three records are real anomalies in terms of like where what the sort of stuff they had done up to that point. They, you know, they don't necessarily you know it's it can be difficult in some ways to distinguish a lot of their records if you're trying to describe how they're different um and for some people that's like you know they make the same record over and over again and so if you don't fuck with the first iteration the rest of it is all going to fall on deaf ears but 
you do come to appreciate as you go through the discography the ways in which they do subtly tweak and build their sound especially as they go on like the first three records like are all basically the same album uh, and then the second set of three records are very much of a muchness as well but it's just there the songwriting is just so good and the sound is so just totally enrapturing that you're never like you're you're never really tired of it I mean you're exhausted by it a lot of the time but you're never really tired of it and they'll always do something unexpected like occasionally you know and amongst all of these really sort of dreadfully sad dream pop songs they'll just have like a perfect rock song just randomly or they'll have like a like uh their third album ends with like a 15 minute noise drone song and it's just like they they will do things occasionally that do just take you aback and but they net but it's almost that's always the exception rather than the rule so it makes their records kind of like relaxing um, but also gives them a certain element of tension that doesn't always boil over but when it does or when you are sort of blindsided then it really you know it, it's a high like nothing else speaking seamless transition speaking of bands that don't really change a whole lot about their sound throughout a long career the other band that i've been listening a lot to this week motorhead uh weird uh two mainstays uh, of my week uh, most certainly i think that was just sort of balance out my mood but I've mentioned Motorhead once or twice in the past as being a heavy metal band. I have a, a real affinity and appreciation for And like I said, leading off, this is a band that does not change a whole lot about their sound. Uh, may, like to a fault, certainly. Um, the, the thing with Motorhead is that they have more than a lot of heavy metal bands. They have an exceptionally high floor they also just have a tidbit lower of a ceiling than other bands that I truly love as much as I do. Like, if you're looking for a heavy metal band that's going to give you, you know, the the classics of something like, you know, Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning, Motorhead's probably not going to be that band for you, um, especially these days. I know a lot of heavy metal geeks that would uh, probably disagree with that, but to me, Motorhead is a special band because... You know, as soon as they start coming out with albums in the late 70s, they they know what they do. And throughout their career, they just iterate upon themselves and just do it better as they go along. That's kind of the most underrated quality about them as a band is that at least in my opinion, no, this isn't a popular take. But Motorhead are a band that kind of got better as they go along. Again, uh, not exactly a consensus or a hugely agreed upon consensus, though I know many people who will ride heavily for select entries in this band's discography later on. And I've loved this band for a long time. I listened to shit like uh, Ace of Spades and Bomber back when I was first discovering metal music right after I met Morgan and I was getting into shit like Metallica. Um, and I have been meaning to just sort of sit down and listen to all of these albums and rank all of them. And it was, it had to be a personal project because a lot of the times I figure I'll do something like this and I'll be like, oh, I can make like a video out of this. I can make like a tier list. And the thing is, is that that would be the most boring video ever uh, because it's like Motorhead have like 24 main studio albums. So yes, basically. And the thing is, 
is that this discography is the bottom third is like straight, really solid six out of 10 albums. The middle third of that is like really great seven out of 10 heavy metal albums. That top third, anywhere from like a seven and a half to like, a, you know, topping out at like a nine. So there's a lot of albums where you would just be like, this is good. And yeah, like the thing is, is that Motorhead, they design their albums around this and that all of them pretty short. They're like 32 to 38 minutes long. They really find the sweet spot. And they actually have a more interesting sound that I think a lot of people give them credit for. A lot of people are just like, just listen to Ace of Spades. It's the best one. And it's it's the one with Ace of Spades on it. And it's the best one. So that's why you should listen to it. And first of all, wrong. No. Ace of Spades. Great classic heavy metal album it is not the best motorhead album uh uh it is not even close if you ask me uh anyway it any motorhead album with jailbait on it is not the best motorhead album and i'm not even like people that, be like oh fucking fucking pc police over here complaining about the heavy metal song it's just that, like that's, look, listen, listen, that's listen. like that's like how the number of the beast is like so obviously not the best Iron Maidens album because it has 22 Acacia Avenue on it, which I'm sorry is that's regrettable at best. No, you're you're correct. That is the exact comparison I thought of multiple times. And look, if people want to hop on my ass for being like fucking 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 progressive fucking idiot fucking, fucking offended by jailbait it's like no here's the thing about motorhead so motorhead's music definitely is a about, thing that our audience would do <laughs> i mean we've had we've had people in the comments in the past I've, I've deleted many but motorhead's music is about few very selected things it's about war and fighting and beating the shit out of people it's about partying until you die doing lots of methamphetamines um, one of my favorite comments I saw on a rate your music box on a Motorhead album this week was I've had a DUI. Of course, I rated this a five. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and and the third thing, which is there isn't a third thing. They're about those two things. And if you want to have an album that's about being cool, don't have a song on it about like a 20 year old dude saying that he just can't wait to fuck a teenager. Sorry, but that's like the least cool thing I can possibly fathom. So no, Ace of Spades, good album. You should listen to it. It's got great songs on there other than Ace of Spades, like Love Me Like a Reptile and Shoot You in the Back, but it is not the best Motorhead album. In my opinion, the definitive sort of upper echelon of Motorhead's discography, the best Motorhead album, in my opinion, is 2004's inferno yes this is the one this is the quintessential motorhead album because earlier on in their discography i the, the most unpopular take i'll have is that the highest rated motorhead album overkill uh overkill more like overrated because it's fine um it's it's a very good album a lot of those early motorhead albums they have some really great standout singles on there like the title track like ace of spades and then like a lot of the other songs are just very punk blues heavy metal fundamental solid rock and roll good shit but they don't do anything to truly up the ante to really like blow you away 
Later career Motorhead, on the other hand, they get better at album construction. They get like, you know, everything is, feels a bit tighter. The riffs feel like they're designed to be even more hard hitting. The production doesn't hold them back anymore. Everything sounds big. It hits like a motherfucker. And Lemmy has sounded like he was 60 since he was 21. So obviously his presence as a frontman is not really diminished by the fact that they were making these albums in the 2000s. And there's also later era albums like Bastards, which I think is the second best Motorhead album, which is in like the 90s, which I think is terrific. 1916, which is a way more conceptually slanted Motorhead album, which bewilderingly ends on like a Roger Waters, The Wall-esque ballad about the horrors of war sung by Lemmy. And it's really good, even though it sounds, you know, <laughs> like it's a bit, <laughs> Lemmy's got a voice that you would not think works well for ballads. But that's the thing that I really appreciate about this band is that when they want to go into straight up blues, they do it really, really well. There are a couple songs on Bastards. There's some like, there's some proper heartbreaking shit on those records. Like the final track on 1916 alone is something that kind of like, it kind of makes you well up inside. It's the description of a, you know, a young soldier going off to war and dying on the battlefield next to his best friend and calling out for his mother. It's, it's fucking just like, Jesus, I didn't know the this band had this in them. And then there's a song on Bastards, which... I'm not really going to go into the subject material on. Just listen to that album. You'll get to the song. You'll know what it is and you'll hear it. And you'll just be like, huh, this title sure is kind of sketch. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh, I want to die. Um, but great album. But it's Inferno to me that epitomizes all of the best things about Motorhead. And that this just sort of, this is all killer, no filler. It's like the proper album size of like 40 plus minutes. So it gives you enough but not too much, doesn't overstay its welcome. This is just everything I love about this band condensed into the best possible package. There's other late career greats, like their final album, Bad Magic. I think Motorizer's particularly underrated. Um, and uh, fucking Aftershock has two of the best Motorhead songs ever on there, um, which I think is a great album. But if you ever make it a point to listen to Motorhead, and you're just you don't know where to start because they have such a long career and they have so many albums and a lot of people love those earlier records. But even if you do end up loving them, I promise you that if you're new to this band, you will not love those albums as much as like old head metal people do. So if you listen to one Motorhead album, make it Inferno. There's nothing special I can say about it other than this is the best version of Motorhead sound. So Seek that out. It's a ton of fun. I had a great time listening to it this week. Uh, one exercise I underwent this week is that just sort of out of the blue, uh, I decided to just listen to some things that are on my back catalog. Uh, one of which was I finally completed the studio discography, you know, because it's so lengthy of My Bloody Valentine, because up until this week, I had only heard uh, Loveless, which we talked about on the show, and their sort of comeback record. But I finally, I, I listened to a lot of their EPs this year just because, uh, you know, Dream Pop and Shoegaze bands, it's like an unwritten rule that half of your discography contains some of the best EPs you'll ever hear. Um, My Bloody Valentine, no exception. They have some great EPs, uh, my favorite of which is probably Glider. That EP is fantastic. They have some great compilations, too, um, uh, a lot of which I really enjoyed earlier this year. But I never listened to the first album, which is Isn't Anything, which bewilderingly came out in 1988 
I was like, I kind of had to do a double take when uh, Brett reminded me of that. And I was just like, oh my God, this really is just ground zero for this shit. And if you are aware of our Loveless review, you'll know that I, you know, I'm the shoegaze dream pop boy. Um, and I like Loveless a whole lot. Probably love that album. Ha ha ha. Um, but it's not, it doesn't hold the same status and sway for me that it does with many other fans of shoegaze. Um, and I think that uh, MBV is exactly as good as that album, just in different ways, really. But, I mean, hot take, I think Isn't Anything is my favorite album of theirs. I just, I love how... I love how ugly this album is. It's it's like, I mean, it's sure proto shoegaze and all, and it is definitely, it, it just feels a little bit more like noise pop, which is probably why it's, you know, in this sort of nation. It's much closer to Jesus and Mary Chain, who are the other band that I feel like were ground zero. And, and, and to be fair, came before MBV. It probably mm -hmm. is the closest that it shows the influence of, of that band, I think, in a way that their subsequent stuff doesn't. Yeah. And Isn't Anything is just a great collection of really fun noise pop songs, including, I think, the best one-two punch on any My Bloody Valentine album. And probably my two favorite songs from the band are uh, No More Sorry and All I Need. Yeah, which great are, songs. Yeah, I God damn amazing. Like, absolutely essential. Just because, like, this is an album that's certainly held in high esteem, but it's definitely overshadowed by the other two albums. I've heard them talk way more about than this and you know regardless of how much you like it compared to the others this is an essential listen i mean nothing much to lose feed me with your kiss some classic classic songs on here and it just it feels like it channels it into uh, a form where on loveless occasionally the production is so big and they do so much to everything and it's so maximal but sometimes some of their you know sonic motifs can grate on me just a tiny little bit whereas here that's not really as much of the case it's it's it feels like they have a tighter grip on their sound and i know that that's like that's kind of the appeal of loveless is that it just sort of transcends and spools out but if you want something that's a little bit more anchored to planet earth I would recommend checking that out. And then it got me thinking, which of the big three of Shoegaze has the best debut album? Because I've been listening to a lot of these uh, bands in the last two years because, you know, I got really into Slow Dive January of last year. Uh, and now they're one of my favorite bands ever, one of my most listened to bands ever. And this year I got really into Ride. So I'm wondering, like, you know, I really like Isn't Anything. I haven't heard the Slow Dive debut in a while, just because that's easily my least listened to project of theirs, even though I think it's good. And Rides Nowhere is an album I've been meaning to get back to for a while, just because initially I thought that album was too long, because the 25th anniversary edition <laughs> has <laughs> a just absolutely bug nutty amount of bonus tracks. It is like seven bonus tracks on that fucking album and it just doesn't list them. So I was like, I need to go back and listen to that too so I can judge it by its own merits. And then I can figure out what I think is the best of the three, big three of Shoegaze. What is the best debut? And funnily enough, in the third place tier, I'd say it probably goes to the band I have the most affinity for out of those three. And that's Just For A Day. Just for a day is a fantastic album. Let it not be said that, like, you know, I'm not naysaying or anything just because it's the weakest of these three. It's great. You can yeah, feel it has, the it has fucking catch the breeze on it. So it's like the 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 fucking floor is is insanely high already. <laughs> There's nothing on here, anything short 
of fantastic. And it has some of the best songs the band ever made. And it's a unique incarnation of their sound just because this is so early on in the world of shoegaze that you can sort of see some of their earlier influences bleed into their work. This is like the gothiest slow dive album. It has a lot more of that kind of post the cure vibe than anything else they would make. Um, and for that, it's really cool. It's a really comfortable, really warm, really beautiful record that even though it's the least good slow dive album, it definitely deserves to be appreciated for what it is, but it is very much the blueprint for which they would build their shoegaze empire upon. Uh, and in second place, I would say that that actually just goes to isn't anything. I think that it's a stronger album just because it has some higher highs, but I think what makes it truly valuable to me is that as an album, I think it holds together a little bit better. And because the best moments on the first Slow Dive album can also be found in Slow Dive EPs that are, again, just as good as some of their proper stuff. And you can sort of get the cream of the crop from that album in an EP experience. So, and I can't quite say that with uh, Isn't Anything, even though some of those songs can be found elsewhere. It's just, this to me feels like the most wholly enjoyable thing from the band. And I got to give the debut gold medal to Ride because goddamn nowhere, what a record. I loved it before, but I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to like it more again now that I can listen to the proper version of it. And now that I'm, well acquainted with its very tight pacing. It's a pretty short record. I think the shortest of the three. Um, if not, it's at least uh, comparable to isn't anything in length. But this is an album that feels like Ride knew what their artistic identity as a band were a little bit more confidently than the other two bands at this point. It feels like Slow Dive was still finding themselves. It feels like My Bloody Valentine was still finding themselves. Whereas Ride, this is fully formed. This is great shit. I'm always going to prefer going blank again just because i think that's maybe the second best shoegaze album of all time just like straight up shoegaze um but this is no slouch either it's a shame that nobody gives a shit about any ride album after going blank again um i do want to try them out just for the sake of it but pretty much the entire bit with that band is that they, they sold out and went brit pop and it's like well i don't know that doesn't sound so bad maybe it's good who knows uh but there's my my take about shoegaze albums. After that, I needed to listen to something that was far less aggressive on the ears. Uh, and I've been obsessed with this album all week. I think I've listened to it every single day. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not ending the streak of Jake talking about Japanese albums in the introductory segment this week. Not quite yet, um, because I listened to an album from a band called, I think, band, duo, I'm not exactly sure, um, something that's been on my radar for a very long time, which is uh, Mid-Air Thief's album, uh, Crumbling. Uh, this was recommended to me on Twitter eons ago. I don't even remember from who, but one of like our music Twitter adjacent mutuals said it was like one of the most beautiful albums he'd ever heard. And I was like, yeah, I should give this a shot. I tracked it down, downloaded it see what this is all about and this is a curious record because it has no structure like not even terms of like an album i mean the songs here they just kind of break away and dissolve and randomly become something else frequently and at first i was just sort of like this is really jarring but the thing about it is that it's 
beautiful. The best way I can describe this is that it's like Japanese sweet trip, actually. And it's really cool, but it's even, it adheres to less of the conventional structure of music that you're used to hearing than Sweet Trip. It's just a lot of it's kind of glitchy. It basically reminds me of uh, A Tiny House and Secret Speeches Polar Equals if you like merged it with uh, the antlers um, in the attic of the universe. Because it also has this really kind of sparse occasional folk instrumentation that's just like really kind of worn and occasionally lo-fi. But the way that they just put all of this together, it's just an ocean of beauty. And the album just never stops being gorgeous. I I can certainly understand not digging it just because the raw sound of it is 100% its appeal. And the way these songs just kind of drift and become these multi-layered fucking suites of beautiful dream poppy goodness that's also like immensely hypnagogic and strange but it never takes away from you know the, the overall vibe occasionally it could be super quiet super loud it's a really dynamic record but it also just it has that sort of tangibility that the sort of strings on an early antlers record would contain and it has these kind of swells that are on stuff like the closer uh to that album so basically they took two of my favorite albums ever and then merged it into this weird fucking thing and i just i, I can't recommend it enough just because listening to it is an exercise it really does feel like it evokes the cover you feel like you're standing oceanside on a beach like you know late in the afternoon you want to get like a drink and you just kind of drift away with the waves been an absolute saving grace a very underrated record from what i can tell like people generally speaking really like it and they have a first album too that's supposed to be really good that i'll totally be checking out but i, I you will get something out of this i don't know how much but if you're anything like me it could end up being one of the most compelling things you listen to in a while so it's a very pretty album all right. Well, what have I been listening to recently? I'll shout out a few things I've been listening to, I suppose. All right. Well, I'll start with um, Susumu Hirasawa. So Jake's been singing the praises of Susumu Hirasawa, the great Japanese musical mastermind uh, for the last several weeks on this podcast. So, of course, I knew eventually I would finally take the plunge into listening to one of his records. And I, I started like you, when I said I listened to The Twilight Sad for the first time. Yeah, and I started with Technique of Relief, which I listened to like twice in a row. <laughs> I was just like completely taken with this album. That it, it, just this incredible, like skyscrapingly huge, massive opus of gorgeous pop fantasy. It, it's it's absolutely flooring. What's even more like impressive about it is that like it's clear when you listen to it that it's all synthetic so like the strings are clearly midi strings and everything is either like sort of sampled or just constructed from synthesizers or maybe some guitar you know just mostly synthetic electronic stuff uh, yet it sounds so expansive and so just three-dimensional in a way that is difficult I imagine especially in the 90s to get out of that technology so that's one of the things that really just struck me is how awe-inspiring the sound of it all was and i think the album's a masterpiece i've probably listened to it five or six times now it's just every single time i listen to it i'm just completely 
taken aback by the sheer beauty of songs like ghost bridge and the man oh. from narcissus space and uh bridge builder world cell and not to mention you know the 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 album disperses these gorgeous uh plaintive moments with absolute ragers like town zero phase five banger time, um mother as well an absolutely in, intensely catchy song I mean, the whole album is just front to back fire. I mean, there's just nothing about it that I don't fucking adore. Um, so I also I also followed that up. I went and finally listened to the Berserk soundtrack, which is a beautiful soundtrack. Definitely something that I feel like I'm not getting the full experience of this one oh, yeah. not experiencing Berserk itself. But I mean, you, it, you, it's... it hit you like Guts theme hit you in exactly the way it should. But like, I won't deny my attachment to that soundtrack is a hundred percent because of my fondness for Berserk as a youth. But that said, Guts theme is still one of the best songs ever made by yeah. anybody. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. It's it's haunting. I've listened to that like at least ten times this week. That song alone, and I also listened to uh, I think what was the first album that he put out when he signed to Polydor, major label debut, Aurora. Uh, I thought this album was stunning. Uh, so I mean, in contrast to the sort of raw adrenaline rush pop of Technique of Relief, this album is much dreamier. It's much more focused on just these lengthier, gorgeous, expansive songs. But that said, the the sound palette here is still really just huge. And I mean, I really value actually the songs here that really just take the time to just linger in these empty spaces and these gorgeous synthesized textures, tracks like Love Song, Stone Garden, uh, Snow Blind, the incredible 13 minute Opus Island Door, which has enough, oh. which with its persistent marimba reminded me consistently of Coil. Um, but even some of the shorter tracks like In the Square and the title track really, really, I, I really took to those. Uh, and I that was and this is the thing with Hirasawa so far is that like that's another album where despite being a full hour long, I listened to it twice, you know, in the Why same that? day. I, I just wanted to go back to it and listen to it again. And it just I, and it, it got better and it still is. And it's still an album that I've been coming back to. And I'm going to continue, I think, more or less chronologically from this point and, and go yes. on to SimCity next since I'm... Aurora, Aurora is like his first great album. And the thing is, is that if you love the sort of big adrenaline rush pop of something like Technique of Relief... The next two albums on your list do that, in my opinion, at least better than anything in his whole discography. Both Siren and SimCity are just these like they're, you know, close to Aurora. But the departure from the dreaminess is like it's so instantaneous and it's just so fucking massive. I actually um, uh, I won't speak too much about it because I'm eventually going to make a video about this because I can't not. But I actually imported uh, a vinyl from Japan of my favorite album of his. Uh, siren which in my opinion is like the most consistently like just absolutely stupefyingly large pop album i think anyone's ever made it, you'll i i can't wait such a journey uh i also shout out as well i listened to uh a great new sort of power pop band called sobs uh it's, it's their second album they're actually a singaporean uh power pop band 
and they so they have a lot of Singaporean grindcore band. <laughs> yeah, they're a Singaporean power pop band. Lots of like jangly sort of twee tones and what they do. Uh, their album they put out this week, Air Guitar, is a tight eight tracks, not even thirty minutes long. And it's just really, really excellent from start to finish with enough surprises tucked away, like the random drum and bass fusion outro of the song Friday Night that keeps it really, really surprising. Um, it's a beautiful power pop record. Anyone who enjoys power pop, twee pop music will will really get a good kick out of this album. It's really strong stuff uh, from a band that really have a lot of talent. So I can't recommend that highly enough. Uh, I also listened to... Um, the new album from sort of legendary French pop band Phoenix, who I'm a huge fan of for the record. And they were like, the, like one of the, one? yeah. So they, they're like, they were kind of one of the tent poles of indie pop and synth pop in the particular mid to late 2000s era. And they released like a string of records, particularly 2006's It's Never Been Like That, which is still, I think, their best album of just really catchy, really immediate, really great synth pop stuff. Like with a, with a little enough of like a rock edge to it to make it feel really fulsome as well. Like, uh, it's never been like that. It's just one of the best pop records of the 2000s, I think. It's just really great. Ten songs, no misses. Just really catchy, catchy stuff. And then, of course, their most famous album is 2009's Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, which essentially took, saw them blowing that sound up even more to, like, you know, IMAX size proportions. You know, it's this it came out the same year as Meriwether Post Pavilion, and it's very much a Meriwether Post Pavilion indie pop core record. And it has like, of course, Listomania 1901, the first two songs in the album, which like massive singles that yeah, I was gonna you say know them, you'll probably the, have heard them. The one that had the fucking song that was in car commercials for like the next five years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I think and that I whole that album. Band. That whole album's great as well. Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, again, really tight, 10 tracks, 35 minutes. Very difficult to fault that. Uh, and even 2013's Bankrupt, which was kind of, I think, critically received somewhat underwhelmingly, I think is a really underrated record. In fact, I might even prefer that to Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. That album's another really strong slice of more new wave adjacent uh, indie pop that I think really holds up strong. And so like Phoenix have been a great like comfort band for a long time. They're just really easy to listen to their music. And at the same time, it never really felt cheap or facile either. Um, that said, 2017's Tiamo, the follow-up to Bankrupt, was a fairly underwhelming record, I thought. Not a bad album per se, but just lacking a lot of the charisma and memorability of the records before it. And so it's been six years and Phoenix are back now with a new album called Alpha Zulu, which is disappointing. <laughs> um, whatever Ooh, the that, that tone is not a good indicator. Yeah, like whatever it is that whatever spark or energy that Phoenix once had, maybe it's just that I've grown out of it and I'm just so attached to those earlier records that you know this new stuff is just not animating me because i have all of the phoenix i need but also i think the more i thought about this record while i was listening to it the more i was just convinced that no this is just a bad album and it's an interesting bad album because it has like 
an amazing song on it like the song tonight the second song on this record featuring uh ezra koenig of vampire weekend is one of the best songs they've ever put out it's fucking fantastic it's great i it's it's actually good enough for me to have put it on the long list of considerations for my songs of the year list which i'm already starting to kind of try and put together now ezra koenig and phoenix really just we really just are in 2010 again aren't we yeah exactly but no it's a it's a great fucking synth pop rager it's it's really out of here (laughs) i want to go back it's 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 just really catchy and it's really really good and well put together and the rest of the record just kind of sounds like glass animals it's just like oh it's really just sort of anodyne i I don't think it's as bad as that last glass animals album which you know i hate hopes you you Uh, went on record just being like it's so bad guys (laughs) i remember that so vividly yeah yeah that record sucks fat ass uh, but this album is not as bad as that. I mean, it certainly has that yeah, one great that song. Be. And, you know, there's a couple of, there's a few songs that I think uh, not very good at all. Uh, the title track, The Only One, uh, Season Two, All Eyes on Me, dreadful songs. There are a few songs here that I think are, are possibly good that I think that Phoenix fans will get a kick out of. Uh, After Midnight's not bad. Uh, winter solstice artifact identical the closing track is or is is probably the second best song here it's just overall i think probably the weakest project that they've put out and there's just not enough good ideas here to really outweigh the stuff that really just made me feel kind of sad to listen to and this is a band phoenix or a band that if you're ever feeling sad while listening to this band then they're doing it wrong because this is one of those bands that should that should always make you feel good and in their best moments always do that they're never ever a sad band and yet this album kind of did make me feel a bit depressed because it just wasn't you know lean it it just felt like the spark that ignited so much of their best stuff was just really not there apart from again one or two songs so yeah that's basically what i have been listening to all right let's get into the first of our reviews for today which is album from Fleshwater. We're not here to be loved. Fleshwater, as Jake alluded to briefly in the intro of this episode, is a new project composed not of all the members, but I think of most of the members of the great uh, metalcore band Vane FM, uh, formerly known as Vane. This is just like a, a Viet Cong situation where it's like every new release for some reason is a new band name. Um, but I think that to be, I think to be exactly precise, that Fleshwater is intended to be a separate project to Vane FM, uh, rather than just a, a name change. But regardless, if you like metalcore, fucking check out that Vane FM album from this year. It's called This World Is Going To Ruin You. Uh, one of the, my favorite metal releases of the year, just fucking immense 32 minutes of straight fire. Uh, Jeff Rickley is on that album as well for fans of Thursday. Um, so yeah, I mean, what else is there to say? Amazing band, amazing record. And so most of the members of that band are back now with this new pro- project, Fleshwater, which kind of leans away from the metalcore side of things and then more into a kind of shoegazy alt metal sound. Uh, combined with the 
uh, album cover, which features a not at all creepy close up of a rubber duck. That in combination with uh, the sound of this particular project has led to many online fans dubbing this duck tones. Uh, I mean, which, which is like so perfect that you almost wish the band had called the album that. Although, <laughs> although that said, we're internet. not here to be loved is a is a very raucous and very kind of you know metal album title. So I'm not complaining. Uh, anyway, yeah. So this is very much in the vein of bands like Deftones. It owes a lot to in the vein. <laughs> I didn't even do that. Actually. Uh, it definitely owes a lot to Deftones in particular, but also like that post new metal wave of of kind of uh dirgier, heavier alt metal that bands like Deftones and also equally bands like Tool, you know, were were a part of in the early two thousands. Uh, so, but yeah, and here it is fused with, you know, enough raucous energy to make it feel like it truly belongs in the current wave of irreverent sort of post-hardcore bands that we're kind of inundated with all the time. We basically review a band that's to some extent like Fleshwater seemingly every other week. Uh, and, and that's cool because those albums are always interesting and great. And I know that this in particular, when I heard this, I thought immediately, like, oh, I, Jacob, I, Jacob will have to have to listen. <laughs> They're going to fuck with this so hard. It's like, it's almost like bait, essentially, for the three of us. And I mean, I, mean, down I to turned the, the fact, album on and I said, oh, come on. <laughs> like, it's bait for this, for this podcast, down to the fact that there's a fucking Bjork cover on this album. And not just any Bjork song. Dude. Like, Enjoy, which Dude. is one of the, like, industrial deep cuts from Post. Here, completely transmogrified uh, at the hands of this band. And, of course, Hurt Blue strikes again. Turned into this, like, completely ethereal fucking Saturday Night Wrist era Deftones style, you know, sex jam. <laughs> it's, it's, we, it's... we need a Kurt Ballou and Sean Everett sign now. Yeah, you yeah. guys ever think that Kurt Ballou kind of looks like Ballou from the Jungle Book? I don't Hold even on. know like... what Kurt Ballou looks like. I, I actually don't either. And I'm I hope he to... does, though, because that would be really I... funny. <laughs> He's literally just some guy. I like ran into this man oh, yeah. at Walmart. Look at his man. <laughs> Look at his fucking mustache, man. He's he's admittedly he does appear to be like eight feet tall. His his fucking flannel, he just he literally does look like he's about to walk up somebody be like Mowgli. I'll <laughs> <laughs> fucking do it again. This this guy looks like a dude who just like replaced like Morgan Wallen on the country charts. Like in his flannel, his bare beard, his fucking acoustic guitar, and his fucking nerdy ass smile. <laughs> this man is, is is one of the key creative minds behind perhaps the most influential uh hardcore band of the past twenty-five years. Yep. Yeah, I mean, look at that. That man. That man has has freakish, handly large hands. If you just look at him in that photo, oh, like, yeah, I, I think build guitars. Yeah, <laughs> or at least he does. I don't know if he has to, but he does. All right, so I would throw up when I heard this. 
you know, I did think immediately, okay, James and T Bates, but I specifically had the thought, okay, this is like Morgan's gonna throw up when he hears this. Yeah, I did. So Morgan, Spoilers. why don't you like jump in here and tell me yeah. like, what you thought about this in terms of like as a record, as a like new spin on a sound that we are like, you know, it's just fucking catnip to us. Yeah, I mean, I almost find the Deftones comparisons a little annoying. It feels a bit reductive, honestly, just because there is so much hardcore DNA baked into this that isn't in Deftones in the same way, right down to an al- the album length, uh, which is just under 28 minutes. Like, Deftones are not ever going to release an album that's 28 minutes long. No. Or, nor would they release a song like Closet, which is a little over two minutes and is just like two or three real ideas. And all of them are excellent. And they just barrel right through that. And then on to the next one. Also, a big distinguishing factor, I'd say, as well, is the presence of multiple vocalists, including yes. the distinct presence of Marisa Sharir, who frequently at points on this record reminded me of Hayley Williams, of all things, which gave me yeah. like that, which gives it this very different edge, you know, that makes it feel like, like, so you can kind of tell this is sort of a little bit of a super group sort of band. Like there's a lot of distinct voices in this music, both actual voices and just like in terms of musicality, that makes it feel like something that rewards like, uh, yeah, it, it cheaply and obviously it can be described in terms of obvious reference points, but also like it's satisfying in a way that simply ripping off those bands wouldn't be because of how much presence and character is here. Albums like this, which, as you've said, we're reviewing every other week, it feels like. I think we have, like, our own windmill scene sort of going on over here in America. <laughs> instead, it's just hardcore takes, I guess you'd say, instead of post-punk takes. But I am completely enamored with this album. I've listened to it in its entirety five or six times, I think. I, it goes without saying because of the man currently over Riley's shoulder. Uh, you know, he produced and engineered it. So it goes without saying that it sounds pretty much as good as a metal record can. It really benefits from that production because the whole thing has this really scuzzy, physically dense feeling to it. Everything sounds massive. It's it's heavily atmospheric, like pretty much every Deftones record is. And I think that's mostly where that basis for comparison lies. I think that's definitely where they share the most kinship. Uh, but I don't think a Deftones record has been this atmospherically scuzzy, at least since White Pony. Uh, but I, And I think the closest bit of DNA shared there is around the fur ultimately yeah another deftones core band but i i am reminded frequently listening to this album of uh loads you won't get what you want 
Um, you're thinking of I laid it in and that I laid it in and it took everything. Yeah, there we go. Just all these album titles by hardcore <laughs> bands that are just ominously fucking cryptic. And uh, I was reminded of that album a fair bit, but I think honestly, I like this one even more than that one. And that album is really something special, I feel. But I think this one really benefits from the focus that it has. And I love the unfocused parts of I Lettered and it took everything as well. But there's a conciseness and precision to the atmosphere on this album that I think you don't really see on Below the Album. Really, th- this is an album that I, at first, like once I heard like the first two songs, I don't think I was more disappointed any moment this year in music than when I looked down to see that the album was only 29 minutes after those first two songs. And I was just like, shit, <laughs> I can already tell it's going to be too short. And thing is, is that I'm not wrong about that and that i do think that that's maybe the thing that holds this album back the most is that again it's kind of like the first like it's like the first backwash album that we covered where it was just like everything here is great there just needs to be more and that's still how i feel yet paradoxically the more i listen to this more i'm like yeah, but the brevity is also what makes this work as well as it does. It's kind of like, I completely agree is that this does kind of feel like the the sort of midway point between White Pony and Around the Fur, two albums that sound fucking amazing. And this is just Kurt Ballou deciding to try and do his version of that, uh, which is awesome because frankly, for as overstated as the Deftones comparisons are, we don't have enough bands who are truly copying deftones enough like we i i i'm upset that there's not more people taking from their playbook and this feels like one of the few times other than that loathe album where it's been done and it's been done about as well as they could possibly feasibly do it and the more i listen to this the more i'm just like this sort of tight package that's delivered here is kind of ideal for a band who are obviously venturing outside of their established comfort zone, but also, you know, they have enough to say and enough of, you know, material to say it with that they don't want to overextend or overexert themselves in case this is like a a failed experiment or just something that maybe they needed to get out of their system or something that they just, you know, something that feels a little bit more frivolous when it could in fact be the sort of basis for a career in potential great 2020s hardcore musical acts just because I I think that another great point of comparison for me anyway was also Saturday Night Wrist and as much as I know that my take on that album is hot is that this kind of feels like Saturday Night Wrist but it just kind of takes away all the things that I personally don't care for about that album it takes away the sort of unwieldy coked out messiness and just sort of trims the fat to the barest possible essentials but when i say barest that's not inherently a bad thing it's it's really more of like you know again i've been listening to a lot of motorhead this week so i really appreciate it when you know albums know how to hit fast and hit hard and do so consistently and i think that is another 
part of this that, yeah, it's 29 minutes or 29, actually it's 27. It's 27 minutes. So it's not exactly like the biggest compliment in the world, but the nine songs here are about as consistent as something can be. I mean, when your minute and 17 second long song still manages to be fucking great and slam, then you're probably doing something right. Though I would be remiss to say I, I would appreciate that if maybe it was a little bit longer. I, with the exception of maybe the penultimate track, which I think is good. I just don't, it, it sort of feels like it, it occupies that sort of uneasy middle ground where it doesn't really develop into anything that I think is as compelling as the rest of the material here but again you get this sort of Haley Williams fronted around the fur kind of shit as soon as one of my favorite songs on here which is Closet I think the first like opening three track run is fantastic like Bald Pate Driver is just a great way to open the album but like The Razor's Apple is just a fucking menacing song this is a song made by people who have experienced true evil in, in that regard it's actually a little bit more comparable to something like the Deftones self-titled just because it does feel like it has a sort of omniscient lingering darkness behind all of it that again is a really compelling thing that informs a lot of the sound here so on the one hand yes it's probably too short but on the other hand too many albums this year have been a bit too long for my liking so when an album that just stays in its lane and knows how to hit the marks that it wants to hit does that i very much appreciate it so it's a bit of like a, a mixed bag in terms of like overall sort of holistic structuredness, but in terms of like in the moment minutia and the viscera of the actual sound over the moon about it. I want a sophomore album next year, please. I'm, I'm asking. That's not too unreasonable for a quest. I don't think. No, it could also be a half an hour, like just more. I don't care. It's, it's, I really don't. Yeah, um, I, look, I I think that the record's greatest strength is how beautifully enveloping its sound is. Uh, I do think that, in particular, in terms of song arrangements and stuff, it doesn't really get much better than the opening and closing tracks, which I think are, you know, not not coincidentally the longest tracks here, uh, and really kind of allow you to sit in that space for a while and allow the band to actually flesh out some of their ideas my other favorite thing here beside those is probably actually the beer cover which oh I think it's great has so much uh obviously the material that it's working from is already fantastic but also just me being so familiar with that song added this extra novelty to hearing it just so completely interpreted in this completely new way which is really really exciting i will say that if anything, if I can hold anything against this album, it has grown, it hasn't grown off me, I won't say, but I, I think I maybe slightly overrated it initially based on how much the sound appealed to me. And the only real weakness with this is that I think that there is, you know, it's a record that is more about, it's a record where the strengths are more in its sound than in its songs. Uh, every song here sounds great, but there aren't a huge number of, actually capital g great songs themselves it can bleed together a little bit um at certain points i think which is the only real thing that i can hold against it um but as i said it starts strong it finishes strong 
there is great presence in the vocals and the band are super locked in and it does have enough flavor within it to transcend the sheer cheap comparisons that are so you know easy to make i think i still prefer loathe i think that they're a great band to compare this to in terms of you know recent bands that have attempted to you know reinvigorate alt metal in this way i think i still prefer that loathe album but i and i definitely prefer the other album that this band or that that vein fm put out this year to this one uh just because i think the sound there is slightly more unique and interesting but still, this is, um, I mean, if you're into any of the things that we've mentioned or any of the ways that we've described this, you'll get a good amount out of this. Uh, it's it's really fun. It's uh, really short. It is really exciting. It's kind of like a great EP that is just a little bit too long to be an EP. And um, I won't take away from it that much for that. It's just... After Sufjan Stevens and Kendrick Lamar, can we even say that anymore? That's true. Yeah. Who cares? Very good, very good release, and I'm excited to see what happens next with this project. Um, I hope that there's a duck on every album cover. Anyway, favorite tracks and ratings for Flesh Waters, We're Not Here to Be Loved. Jake, you go first. All right, well, favorite track on here is probably The Razor's Apple, followed very closely by The Closer Foreign, which is just an eternal banger. Uh, and yeah, I think Closet, that's, that's sort of the moment where I really knew that the this was a sealed deal with me. I've been bouncing back and forth between a seven and an eight all week. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it's a seven and a half. And oh, my least favorite track is probably like Backstairs Breathing. That's just one of the moments where I feel like maybe it would be a stronger record overall if that wasn't there, but it's still really good. So uh, yeah, three favorites, Linda Clare, Closet, and The Razor's Apple. Uh, least favorite, I'll also go Backstairs Breathing for obvious reasons overall i will give this a nine out of ten all right my three favorite tracks are bold pate driver enjoy and foreign my least favorite is yeah probably backstairs breathing uh and i'm going to give the album a seven which gives us an average overall of 7.8 for flesh waters we're not here to be loved all right, let's move on to the second review today, which is, of course, the latest release from the epic, the man himself, Devin Townsend, Lightwork. It should be noted, as anyone who goes way back with us may well know, Devin Townsend was the first artist we did a Record Club episode on. Devin Townsend has been an artist that we have shouted from the rooftops about as long as we've been a podcast. And really, you know, we talked about Ocean Machine. Yeah. Oh, yes, we did do a record club on Ocean Machine as well. Exactly. It was one of the first ones we did this year, I think. So he is, you know, he's eternally podcore in every respect. And he has put out new releases since we have started this podcast. And, and Jake's talked about them, I believe, uh, particularly The Puzzle, which I think came out around this time last year. I actually don't think I did, but it was really more just because those albums were so left field for Devin that like we talked about covering them, but never really did just because they felt like reception was definitely mixed with those two, but they were very much like it was an ambient album, basically his version of a new age ambient album and the puzzle, which is just 
weird. It's it's a very it's two very odd projects to say the least. Yes, but Devin did promise all the same that the next release, which he called Lightwork, would be a little bit more of a return to familiar strengths for him. And Devin is in like he's at an interesting point in his career where, uh, especially off of the back of 2019's Empath, his last major release, you get a real sense, and especially in light of those the puzzle and snuggles and those weird esoteric side projects that he's been indulging in you get a real sense of a place that demon is clearly in creatively where he wants to kind of escape the things that he is most known for the expectations that he makes a particular style of music and he's always been restless i mean ever since you know albums like ghosts for instance casualties of call all those you know uh, unique side projects and and weird little directions that he's taken his various projects in you can you can tell that he wants to get away from just prog metal and he wants to be able to be a little bit more of a diverse artist and and, and have strengths and more avenues it's a light work feels like you know it's an interesting album where it's like in some respects it is even kind of returning to what he is what his fans will be most familiar with what feels like a logical extension from Empath in some respects. You know, there is a baseline heft to this project that we haven't had from the last few Devon releases. But there's also like this increased restlessness in the way that he constructs songs and in the way that he kind of blends genres and tones and aesthetics here that makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of easily slot in with other records that he has made it's a unique album that uh it, you know i have a very bizarre opinion on this record that i think i'll get into once um jake and morgan as the resident devon experts have had their say but uh it, it's a strange record that can show some of devon's strengths in terms of where he's at in this later era of his career but also showcases some of his artistic impulses that result in work that I resonate with a little bit less, um, where I think that there are this, there's the seeds of what could be potentially one of my favorite modern Devon uh, albums in this record, but in the form that it exists in currently, it doesn't quite realize that potential fully. And I'll I'll get into a little bit more of what I mean in a bit, but I want to hear what you guys think first. Well, this has been a bit of an anticipated record of mine, just because Devin has been talking about it for a long time. He's very involved with uh, his sort of communicating with his fan base, especially on, you know, outlets like Twitter, where, you know, he constantly updates as to where he is creatively, as to what kind of stuff he's interested in making. And the cool thing about Devin is that even though he's far from like a particularly popular musician is that he's accrued such a large, vast following from his many different projects over the years that he's still in a place where he can sort of comfortably do whatever the fuck he wants. And that's sort of been his solo stuff for a really long time. Again, Ghost, uh, Casualties of Cool. This is stuff that like... If you would, if you listen to something like those albums first, and then go back and listen to something like Strapping Young Lad, it's literally the two furthest musical ventures. Like, there's nothing more different than Alien and Ghost. Like that, they're worlds apart from one another. 
And that's, again, that's what makes Devin so interesting is that he's able to sort of harness that kind of artistic dynamism and really channel it and use it in a way that doesn't feel like he's ever half-assing any of the new ideas that he's playing with. And it all kind of came to a head on Empath for me, which is easily the biggest, most indulgent thing he's ever made. That's an album that frequently goes between like, there are songs on that album that absolutely sound like Strapping Young Lad, but also have like a xylophone in it. And there are songs on there that sound like immense, like industrial EDM synth pop bangers. And it's just, it is 100% aware of the fact that it is big that it is indulgent, that it is messy, and that it is combining things that most people would not dare combine. But Devin manages to pull it off with a slickness that I think few people are capable of. And the appeal of Empath is it is it is this huge, big, monolithic thing that you can kind of track every bit of Devin's sound over the years into. And it is not a consistent project, but it is a project that I deeply love. I listened to it so much when it came out. It was a hugely anticipated release that year. And honestly, when you build to that point, it sort of just feels like, where do you go from here? Even an artist like Devin, after you make this kind of ridiculous mess of a record, what do you even do here to to constitute as this significant step forward in your artistry? Like, I feel like people like Devin, who are sort of, you know, elder metal statesmen that at this point usually kind of recede into the background and will at most do like production work for newer bands and stuff. And he does do that on occasion, but he manages to step forward and make weird shit like Snuggles and uh, The Puzzle, which I really enjoyed both of those, definitely more than the vast majority of people, but it sort of gave me the impression that it's like, nah, Devin's not done yet. He's not done being weird. And Lightwork is certainly like the most tame and expected release of like the most recent couple of his projects. You know, there's nothing here that's going to, I, I feel like, in fact, that's sort of what happens is that Devin kind of leans away from a lot of the weirdness that he goes into and he goes straight into the sort of epic scale kind of raw beauty. And it's interesting that we get into artists like Susumu Hirasawa so soon because listening to this is a very identical experience to listening to the maximal synth pop that comprised <laughs> albums like siren or you technique know, of now you say that there's definitely some like similar energy like similar creative energy between hirasawa and devon like they just have that same sort of prolific prolific output dominated by this kind of like you know maximalist vision for for like the sheer cathartic possibilities of art and they're just like they make music that's just like so imax scale uh living in that realm their their presences in their respective fields I feel like are really identical too because they both have a kind of mad scientist persona where they just you know they're all about going big going broke just absolutely you know dedicating themselves to this maximalist trend and even though this is an album that is marginally more tasteful and consistent than the last three Devon albums it's also something that I still feel like benefits from that consistency. Uh, I mean, like, there's obviously, like, you know, new Devin project, Jake likes it, oh my god, what? But, like, again, th this is an album that, you know, it doesn't maybe hit the ecstatic heights that something like Empath does that make me do slightly prefer that album just a little tiny bit. 
But in terms of the vibe that it's going for, I don't really get anything elsewhere in his career that I get from Lightwork. This definitely feels like a project that was born out of a lot of internal strife. Devin's also been very open about the fact, I mean, since he was in Strapping Young Lad, he's been open about the fact that he struggled with mental illness and stuff. He's been working through things like his bipolar disorder through his work. And I'm pretty sure that this album is partially as a result of the, you know, impending isolation of lockdown. Like the last three albums of his have felt like purposeful obfuscations to sort of distract himself from everything bad potentially going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Sort of feels like Snuggles is an album that's meant to comfort. Puzzle is an album that's meant to sort of relay the, the kind of fractious anxiety. And Lightwork to me feels like it kind of blends these two things and sort of relies on sheer raw power in order to instill the kind of relaxing bathing in light feeling that you would get from an ambient release like uh, uh snuggles for example it's it's a lot more powerful it has a lot more heft but i mean even in the like the opener moon people it's like this is a song that progression wise it's pretty linear it's it doesn't have a lot of dynamism in it it's very much build build and then it just kind of will plateau at some point but the thing is, is that the sound and the production here Devin's you know trademark wall of sound is as strong as it's ever been in my opinion so once he's able to sort of get these songs to a point where he sort of fixes them into place and sort of coasts on their atmosphere for the remaining range of the song it manages to feel really complete it manages to feel really full and it makes me at least like it makes this an album that feels almost like, you know, it's so titanic to listen to and all these songs are like, they're pretty long, but it manages to feel like a pretty comfortable listen to me. Everything sounds and feels as big and as bright and as cool as it's ever been. I've never been one to fault Devin's production and that's not going to stop here. Uh, and honestly, I think the record really just kind of gets better as it goes along. I, I really love uh, Lightworker. I think the like hook on this is a little bit stronger than on a song like Moon People. Um, but it's at its best when it goes to songs like Dimensions, which I think is maybe the standout from this record in particular, um, or the sort of paired back and sort of comparatively more minimal song like Vacation, which I think sort of relays a kind of sunny, relaxed vibe that like, this album is just, it's like, a you know, a new age prog metal musician makes big music that makes you feel like you're listening to ambient music it has the same effect as an album like you're listening to something like oh like i get the same vibe from like a harold bud album that i do something <laughs> like Lightwork, even though one is comprised of the tiniest most minimal sort of skeleton like bass sound that you've ever heard one is like the most maximal production ever and the fact that it manages to sort of double down on cohesion rather than the big sort of messiness of empath lands it a certain identity that i think is valuable because for as much as i love empath and do kind of prefer it i always wanted to be like okay but what if he took this sound and really made something that's a little bit more focused and i can certainly see like that would have its limitations but this first disc here is honestly just some really really consistently solid really beautiful work that I enjoy a whole lot. And then I, I, I can't really say a lot substantial about it, 
but Riley told me to listen to the second disc, which I hadn't quite listened to yet, just because Empath did the same thing, where it released a disc of bonus material that was demos, that even Devin's demos sound better than most people's finished product, which, like, if you listen to Empath, yeah. absolutely yeah. listen to that second disc. That's a fucking lie. These are not demos. Shut up. I mean, Stop calling them that. False. You're wrong. Like, th- maybe We're on this to you, is- bitch. He, this is what makes it like worth the wait is that regardless of where you come down on it, these are all songs that sound like they've had a year and a half's worth of like effort put into them. And the second disc is him relying a bit more on old tricks. And even then it's like, it's still not as bug shit weird as Empath is, but it's a lot heavier and it's a lot more like, just it's a bit more exciting and i don't say that to like demean the first half in the sense that like that's not an album that's trying to be exciting but the second half i feel like if people are a little bit more disappointed or couldn't really get into the kind of dreamy atmosphere that the first part sets up maybe try that second half a little bit especially that second part to uh was it starcasm is that the song yeah Um, the first song yeah that is maybe between the two of this one of the best things on here. But regardless, listening to this as like, you know, the first disc, good. First disc and second disc, yeah, it's a lot. It's a bit much even. But even so, the whole experience has been so transportative and so relaxing and so liberating as, you know, the holidays approach and anxieties and, you know, people. And it's just, it's easy to feel overwhelmingly crowded by the world. And I really do feel like Devin's sort of uh, goal here to sort of transport the listener, to sort of give them a break, a a breather through music is really accomplished well here. It's not really, it's kind of like what Riley said about the Fleshwater album in that it's really an album that gets more out of the fact that it's a sound that's super great rather than having a bunch of singularly compelling songs. This is not an album like Empath where I'm going to go back to specific cuts. It's going to be an album that I listen to in its entirety for the album experience. And that's not a good or a bad thing. It's just what I think this album is trying to do. Morgan, what are your thoughts on this? I kind of feel like Townsend is in his, it, it's it's like think, talking about David Lynch, everything Inland Empire and onwards, um, where like he's been doing this for so long in such a particular way that he's kind of like we see this with empath really he's kind of just let go of any constraints self-imposed or otherwise um and just done something that is purely out of his own mind and onto the you know the recorder as you will and this does seem to be a uh, a more dialed back, or at least a more, you know, it, its energy is focused in less chaotic places, uh, which is nice, but I don't think is as interesting as Devin's music typically tends to be, which leaves me in the interesting place of being like, this is one of my least favorite. Devin Townsend albums overall, I would say. But I also still really enjoyed it. So, I mean, it, it that doesn't mean a whole lot. 
I think the most comparable project to this in a lot of ways um, is funny because it's the most comparable, but it's the most spiritually antithetical. And that being the Danny Elfman we album we reviewed last year, which is, yeah. you know, a double album about quarantine from a pro eclectic prog adjacent musician who's making this like pure id driven sort of experience. And like of the two, I just sort of prefer this because this is the kind of escape I prefer. And that's kind of what I think is valuable about it is that it's it's more experiential and it's a bit more raw. It's less of like listening to a Devin Townsend album and just like this is this is less an exercise in listening to music and more an exercise in like just getting to lay down and listen to something that sounds really pretty, which sounds demeaning, but it's not. I, I promise that there's real value in that. Yeah, so look, here's what I here's what I think. Um, so I listen I to hate this. You. No, no, actually, <laughs> my... <laughs> yeah, no, Devin Townsend, Devin Townsend sells out. I like the Muse album better. That's not true. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I, I actually am, am giving the, the them the same rating, but that's neither here nor there. You got to do this to Morgan. He's never gonna come back. <laughs> So here's where here's where I come down on it. As I kind of prefaced my feelings earlier, is that it feels like it's a bit of a hodgepodge. I don't feel that there's very many songs on the album it's, uh, itself that come together as satisfyingly as some of the songs on even recent records like Empath do. Uh, I think that some of the standouts include songs like Equinox, which is one of the heavier moments on the album proper. Uh, I'm actually really fond of Celestial Signals, which is kind of like a dream poppier, peepier song that has a little bit more of a um, of a lighter touch to it. Same with the track that follows it, Heavy Burden, as well. I think those are refreshing moments that are actually also more musically sophisticated than they might initially appear to be. But then you have other songs like uh, Heartbreaker, which feels like a little bit too musically disorganized to really be all that satisfying and you have songs like call of the void which is kind of a little bit corny uh for my tastes um which is a surprising thing for me to say about Devin, i guess because he's kind of does like to be a little bit corny in his later era stuff but that song just kind of it it, it rubs me the wrong way and i'm not even 100 percent sure why i think it's that refrain and that song where he's like um don't you freak out he says it over and over and over again and it's just it's just okay yeah fine his, uh, his vocal performances on this album are very eccentric at times and i can certainly see why that would be a sticking point but i i'm too in the bag to not enjoy it when he gets a little melodramatic oh and, and here we go because here's where things get interesting and this second disc is like in my opinion uniformly better than the first disc to the point where it almost feels like Devin is deliberately shooting himself in the foot by by releasing the record in this way because the second disc is not even just bonus tracks it actually has its own name it's called night work uh you know light night yada yada see the thing and you know i'm surprised it doesn't have its own album listing or it wasn't just released as a separate record because it, it, it kind of feels like it has its own identity and <laughs> I'm going to be real with you. I am middling on light work. Night work, 
I mean, I basically love Nightwork. I, I do kind of like it better. I, I just need to listen to it more. Yeah, it definitely took it like, I had to process it for a while. The first time I heard it, I'm like, yep, yeah, I like this second disc more. And I've actually, like, I've listened to Lightwork twice. I've listened to Nightwork now three times. Like, I've actually had an additional listen where I just listened to Nightwork in itself. This is like, yeah, there's parts of it that are like, you know, Devin is leaning a little bit more into the prog metal stuff that's, you know, more transcendence era stuff uh, that, you know, you're, you're a bit more accustomed to, you know, songs like Starchasm Part 2, the immortally heavy and awesome factions um, yeah you know, moments like that that really do come through but then i will say like you know as the second disc goes on he does veer away from that and into some really interesting new directions that i think are surprisingly successful in terms of experimentation for him like i'm really fond of the dreamier and but more rhythmically kind of focused yogi which i think is a really great song the 10 minute fucking prog rock turned into disco jam opus precious sardine which is one of my favorite things on either disc of this album just completely you, addictive you really need to listen to empath that's yeah, no, all i'll say regarding that song absolutely uh the the and again like the, while the corniness of call of the void doesn't work for me some reason a uh, hope is in the world which is also very corny for some reason i find to be ridiculously endearing uh there's even an alternate version of the original album closer children of dog that is just more fucked up and messy and like i said sort of transcendence core uh than the original yeah. version which is just a little bit more of a kind of dreamy plaintive outro sort of thing and i like that version a lot more too uh real deep cut favorite of mine here the song boogus is just like a total <laughs> fucking jam like i just really catchy and funky and just totally different it's like what in a parallel world if i like the red hot chili peppers boogus is what they would sound like uh, and then it ends with this gorgeous, proper, straightforward dream pop song called Carry Me Home, which is just one of my favorite songs from melodically in terms of performance. It's just a gorgeous little end to this whole thing. So like, I'm in this weird position where it's like, you know, and I don't want to undersell Lightwork's appeal because as I said, there are songs on there like Equinox, like Moon People, Celestial Signals, Heavy Burden, where I do really appreciate uh, how Devin is blending, you know, the the intense, uh, you know, radiant uh, guitar maximalism that he's known for with stuff that is a little bit peppier, that is a little bit more restrained by tastefulness. I like the way that he's kind of pushing and pulling at those two extremes of what he does on that first disc. But to me, it's just it's done so much more interestingly on Nightwork. So to the point where I would I would strongly recommend that over the original record. But I would even suggest, you know, listen to it as a double album and see if it gels with you. But if he had just released uh, Nightwork as the album, I, I would have very little to complain about, to be honest. It's, it's a strange place to be in with Devin, but it does feel like the kind of thing that someone like him, who's known for being prolific, who's known for producing a wealth of material each time he sits down to really make a proper album, you know, is known to do something like this. I mean, this isn't even really the first time he's done something like this, because yeah. if you look back to uh, Z Squared, uh, the sequel to um, 
uh, Ziltoid, you know, that, that was famously like kind of split into two like full length album halves as well. And, you know, and it's very divisive among the, the fan base as to uh, which half of that, um, of that massive project people prefer. So this isn't a new thing even for him. Like, it, it's just funny how he is, you know, he can be his own worst enemy sometimes in terms of like structuring and putting all of his music together. Even though he is, it should be said, someone who pays great attention to the craft of doing that and absolutely isn't someone who has a laissez-faire attitude towards it. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a weird place to be in. All the same, though, Devin still has a lot of, you know, he still, I find, he still obviously between these two projects here has enough musical ideas for me to still feel excited by him and by his new material, especially after the puzzle really didn't do much for me at all. So yeah, I, I, I want to see him continue to push himself. And I think that he could really pull off like a straightforward pivot into like funk or dream pop or some of the things he flirts with on certain moments here. Uh, I think he could pull that off, but um, at, at the moment, this sort of feels like a weird sort of transitional thing where he's not quite committing to any particular vision uh, long enough for me to feel holistically satisfied. And yeah, that's just where I'm at with it. I mean, it's, it's sure. It's a weird place to be with, this but also it's a weird fucking way to release music but i i think it might come across that i like this less than i actually do and i have my complaints and criticisms but the fact of the matter is when you boil it down to it this is one of my favorite living musicians and he cranked out an hour and 44 minutes worth of uniformly great material so i am happy in that respect if nothing else there's nothing here that I don't enjoy. It doesn't really cohere in the way that I would like it to, but it's also maybe not designed that way. It's just, it's it's a bit of a puzzle as to why he released it like this. But he light worked very hard on it. Right, so favorite tracks and ratings for Devin Townsend's White. My three favorite tracks, and I'm just going to do it across both discs to be difficult. Um... Actually, no, because my three favorite tracks are all on Nightwork. So I'll do three for each disc. Uh, three favorites on Lightwork are Moon People, Equinox, and Celestial Signals. Three favorites on Nightwork are Factions, Yogi, and Precious Sardine. It's actually a three-track run there of, of brilliant songs. Uh, and yeah, and, and uh, obviously we're not reviewing Nightwork if we were, I might even give that an 8, a 7.5 to an 8. But as it stands, we're reviewing Lightwork. Lightwork itself gets a 6 from me. Well, fucking, uh, yeah, my three favorites, Equinox, Celestial Signals, and Dimensions. Uh, least favorite, uh, hard to say, because I find the album to be pretty consistent overall. Probably say heavy burden, um, and I will give this uh, seven. All right. My three favorite tracks on here are Dimensions, Vacation, and Equinox. 
Least favorite is probably I'll side with Morgan, say probably heavy burden. Um, and I I do really, really like the second disc. I just haven't listened to it enough to pick favorites or anything. And I'll sort of do what I did with the Danny Elfman album is that I'd give Lightwork a seven and I'd probably give Nightwork an eight. So I'll hedge my bets here and go in between and give it a seven and a half. Which gives us an average overall for light work of 6.8. Alrighty, that brings us to the end of this episode of Jams and Tea. Let us know what you thought of either of the albums we discussed today. Flesh Waters Were Not Here to Be Loved or Devin Townsend's Light Work. We want to hear your takes, we want to hear your opinions, especially on that whole light work versus night work debate. Uh, what do you think about the two discs of Devin's latest project? And what do you think of Devin's music in general? We want to hear from you in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a like and subscribing to the channel. If you haven't already, if you want to go above and beyond and support us, you can hit the join button for just $1 a month. You can become a supporter of the channel, a member of our Jams and Tea family. Get your name featured in the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to listen to, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile as always though folks rock over london rock on chicago marriott bonvoy rewards reimagined <laughs>